welcome back to the takedown. I'm Dr. Nick Greiner and with today and with me today and the trend continues to have people on here that are way smarter than me and I, and I imagine that it will continue to be that way. Today with me I have Brady Homer. He has a bachelor's degree in exercise science. By the way, that's my, that's my uh, bachelor's from undergrad from Northern Kentucky University. He is currently a fourth year PhD student at the University of Florida studying cardiovascular physiology. He's a former college cross-country and track athlete and still competes semi-competitively in road races. Brady hosts his own podcast, Science and Chill. It's an amazing name, by the way, where he talks to researchers and experts in the areas of ex exercise physiology, biology, nutrition, and medicine. Brady, welcome, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Nick. Uh, I appreciate you having, on my, having you on my podcast. And I just noticed an error when you were reading my bio, not that you made, but that I made when I sent it to you. I'm actually going into my fifth year of my PhD. Uh, I realized that time, time must fly. So I've actually completed four years going into my fifth. So um, yeah, just, you know, wanted to correct that, but I'm losing track of time. The quarantine, I think, is, is kind, <laughs> yeah. of, uh, kind of getting to me. But um, yeah, in regards to your question, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, just... Uh, Doing a bit of working from home, but have returned to the lab a little bit. Um, we're trying to start up research studies and things like that. But overall, I've been, you know, good, staying healthy, and I'm, you know, pretty, pretty thankful. So good, good man. So how do you? Um, before we get into, I know that we, you and I talked before we got on air here about the things that we're going to chat about. But um, if you wouldn't mind me asking, can you little, share a little bit of light of how you kind of chose the the route that you that you went down this this topic specifically? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'll kind of just start out um, with like undergrad and go from there. Um, because at least as far as I'm concerned, like going to graduate school, it was pretty, pretty serendipitous for me. So I, you know, I went to Northern Kentucky University, um, track and cross country scholarship. And, you know, I studied exercise science. And oddly enough, you know, which is not very common, but I actually never changed my major, you know, I went in kind of knowing I wanted to do exercise science, something related to performance or nutrition or something like that. Um, and I never changed my major. I think it's just because I had, you know, I had this interest in exercise and health and things like that throughout my entire life. So I kind of, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something in that area. Um, and I ended up loving it as I'm sure you did. Um, it's a great, a great undergrad major. You kind of get a little bit of everything. Um, so I went there, got a bachelor's degree in exercise science for four years and Really, you know, I think my first couple years, maybe even my first three years of undergrad, I, I didn't really know that this whole world of research that I'm currently in, like existed, like the world of scientific research, you know, I knew that I knew that there were research studies and that people did science, but I never really considered it as a route that I wanted to go. Um, I think mainly the primary things that I had considered doing with my career after I got a degree or maybe either to go do it, uh, go and do cardiac rehab. Um, I actually, you know, maybe do something related to performance. You know, I've, I've been a lifelong athlete. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll do something like coaching or work with athletes. Um, and then my senior year, actually, I think it was my junior year, my junior year, um, one of my professors just kind of mentioned off the cuff in class, um, Dr. Will Peveler, who I've actually, you know, I've published a couple of papers with him, which I'll kind of get to how that happened. But he basically mentioned in one of our classes, you know, hey, I have this study going on. Um, he worked a little bit with the military, actually, um, on some, he had a couple of grants with the military. And he says, you know, we're going to be doing this research study. If anybody would be interested, you know, just send me an email after class. And I don't even think I waited until after class. I like sent him an email during class. I'm like, Hey, I would be interested because I was, 
I've always kind of just been like, you know, it's an opportunity. Let's just try it. Um, and I'm sure I was the only one in class to do it um, because I was the only one who ended up working on it. But basically, yeah, so, you know, I emailed him. He emailed me back a little bit of information about this study. And it basically said, you know, if you want to work over the summer, um, he had this project going on. And he was looking at the effects of energy drinks on cardiovascular measures during exercise. So we were kind of comparing four different energy drinks in this study. We did like... Uh, I think it was a Red Bull, maybe Monster, and then a couple others. And then we have like this soda that was a placebo, basically to kind of just look and see, you know, do these, we weren't necessarily looking at if they boosted performance, but we were looking at submaximal exercise. So do these energy drinks basically reduce effort at the same intensity, sort of, or, you know, lower your heart rate, um, rating of perceived exertion during exercise, because that's kind of what they're purported to do. Like, why do you take an energy drink? Oh, so exercise like feels easier or so you can... Um, exercise longer, faster, harder, whatever. So we did this study and that was like my first foray into research and it was really interesting and I loved it. You know, basically my responsibilities were, um, I ran, helped run the VO2 max test or the submaximal tests and the VO2 max test that the participants did. I gave them the drinks, I collected some of the data and then I did a lot of the data synthesis too. Uh, well, not synthesis, I like, I put in the numbers basically. I was like, <laughs> I sat by a computer all summer and just entered data. But I like loved it. You know, now it's kind of, sometimes can be a pain in the ass, but um, I was just willing to do whatever just because I was like this little undergrad and just trying to get whatever experience I could get my credibility up, my skills up um, and basically kind of just also kind of like, you know, I was, I wouldn't say I'm like a, a brown noser, but I mean, you know, you want to make good with your professors when you're an undergrad because they have a lot of connections and Absolutely. I kind of like knew, I knew that early on. Um, so I did that study and what was other, the other cool thing about it was he actually had a mini like stipend for it. And so I was able to gain some money over the summer. And so I didn't have to work, which was like great. Like I didn't have to have some sort of stupid job just to make money, um, like working in a restaurant or something like that, which was not what I wanted to do over the summer. I wanted to run and like, that was about it. Um, so I did that research study. It was real interesting. I had a lot of fun doing it. And so then kind of got interested in research. I was like, oh, hey, all of this exists. Then second summer following that, I actually kind of, I applied for this mini grant and this was with another one of my professors. We applied for this, it was called like the summer research fellowship. Again, they gave you like a little stipend just so you could do a mini project over the summer. And we designed this project that was kind of a offshoot of a project he had going on with another collaborator at um, a school in Texas. Basically they were looking at, um, does um, apple cider vinegar ingestion or walking after a meal, so postprandial walking, um, they were looking at whether that could help to control like the blood sugar spike in people with diabetes. Um, that was kind of something I never even thought of. And so I'm like, oh, that, you know, that sounds cool. Yeah. So, and they had, they had, you know, gathered data on some subjects and this was kind of a continuation of that. Um, so we kind of designed this study you know, we had to submit it to the IRB, all that. So this was more of like a real formal, like my first um, going into research design, learning about all that, and also kind of like getting a little bit of practice writing a grant, which was cool as well. Um, I ended up getting that fellowship, which was cool and exciting. And then doing that project, which ended up serving as my, um, I was also an honors in the honors college at Northern Kentucky University. And so you have to do what is called like a capstone project essentially 
a thesis kind of. Um, and so this also served as that, which was, so kind of like went, it was like a double, you know, played two roles in that. And so, you know, completing that study, this wasn't this grand study, but it was something that got me interested in this world of research and not only the performance side, but also more so the clinical side of research and like working with clinical patients rather than high performance athletes or just athletes. And so after that summer, I think my mindset sort of changed. Um, I did that this summer going into my senior year and kind of during my senior year as well. And after that, I really decided, you know, I don't necessarily think I want to do strength and conditioning. Um, I don't know even if I want to work with athletes right now. I kind of want to do scientific research, applied research, and maybe in clinical populations, maybe in healthy populations, but not necessarily anything gauged towards performance. And so then I was like, all right, well, maybe I should start applying to grad school because if you want to do research, basically that's what you do. You go to grad school. Um, Cause you know, the only, the only things that you can really do with a bachelor's in exercise science, if you want to do research related, I mean, you can maybe work on a research team, but you're not going to be running your own lab. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be a research assistant or a research coordinator, something like that. Um, and after doing a little bit of like job hunting, not really hunting, but just kind of seeing like, what can I do with a bachelor's in exercise science? I was like, all right, I need to go to grad school. Um, and then sort of just jumping back a bit. I also did an internship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital for my senior internship. And I worked in the exercise physiology lab there. So we did clinical exercise testing. Um, I did a little bit of cardiac rehab and that was all fun. Kind of also got me interested in the clinical side, uh, the applied side of exercise physiology. Um, but I also realized that I didn't really want to do that sort of testing as a career. Um, and so really all this just kind of led to me like, you know, I'm interested in research. And so, nice. you know, then, then came the decision, all right, well, I got to apply to some graduate schools. And this really didn't happen until like my senior year when I had decided, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I found some applications, not, not really to a lot of places. Uh, I applied, I think, to the University of Oregon, Alabama, Auburn, and then the University of Florida, um, all pretty good exercise physiology departments. Um, I think, I emailed probably a few professors at each, but when it came to the University of Florida, you know, it's kind of a place that I always wanted to go. I was pretty interested in it. And um, they have a pretty, I mean, at the time I didn't know how great our exercise physiology department and the people here are. I mean, we have some like, you know, researchers who are, you know, they're like, do they were doing some of like the classic experiments and like really, really heavy hitters in their fields. Um, so I pretty much sent emails out to all of the professors at the University of Florida. And, you know, I had, I got replies from a lot of them. Hey, you know, I don't have space or, um, you know, we just, I don't really have room for a PhD student right now. And it was just kind of funny because I didn't really even care what I did. I mean, I'm sure I sent, I probably sent emails out to skeletal muscle physiologists, neurophysiology. I mean, at the time I didn't really even do research on all these people. I just like emailed all the professors at the University of Florida. I'm like, I will, you know, I really just wanted to do a PhD somewhere with somebody. Um, and my current advisor, Dr. Demetra Christou, she actually emailed me back. And, you know, obviously I sent my resume out and kind of with all of these emails. And she saw that I had some experience in diabetes, which is what I did that my senior kind of thesis research work in. And, you know, she said, your resume, you know, looks pretty good. I think we share a lot of the same interests. How about we do a call? So I had a call with her and, you know, basically um, at, at that moment there was 
in two weeks the deadline for this fellowship at the University of Florida. It was just the graduate school fellowship, four-year fellowship. Um, and she sent me an email and said, hey, you know, this, there's this deadline in two weeks. You know, I, I want to have a student who's leaving, so I'm going to have a spot. You know, if you and I can work on this in two weeks, we, can, we have to work on this training plan, come up with this plan for you for four years. Um, you know, we have to get your letters of recommendation ready. I have to write something up saying that I'm going to accept you. You know, we got all that quickly in two weeks and sent it in. And then it was kind of a relief to have it all in. And then it was the kind of like a waiting period. So waited, waited, waited. And then, you know, one day I just get like a text from her. Oh, I think it was the day before I was supposed to get a notification of whether I got the fellowship or not. She sent me a text and said, Con congratulations, Brady. You know, I just got news that you've heard that you got the fellowship. And so I was like, oh, well, there's my, I guess my future sealed that I'm going to the nice. University of Florida. And nice. it's just funny because at the time I hadn't visited, I had only been to the University of Florida one time and that was my freshman year of undergrad. Um, we came down here to race cross country. And so, I mean, you know, that was enough. And you're like, yeah, it's the University of Florida. Like how bad can it be? Right. And so, yes. you know, I, we visited over the summer just to find a place for my brother and I to live because he was moving down here with me. Um, you know, I visited, I came to, you know, say hey to my, uh, my current advisor and just kind of take a tour of the labs and get everything set up. But uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it ended up. It was, like I say, it was, I say serendipitous just because it wasn't really like this grand plan, you know, like right. four years ahead of time, I knew I wanted to go to this lab and work here, which some people actually, you know, have, have that kind of plan, which is great. But for me, I was like, man, I, I never really knew that I wanted to do research. And now that I'm now that I'm here and that I've been involved in it for four or five years, um, it's just been, it's been really great. And I continue to learn every day. Um, but you know, it's just, it was just, I, it was a steep learning curve as well, just because, you know, my first couple of years, because it wasn't something that I knew I wanted to do right out of the bat. And so, you know, I quickly transitioned kind of into that mode and, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a learning curve, but I think, you know, I was just kind of thrown in and, and it, it's turned out uh, to be, great so far <laughs> you know what's really cool about what you're talking about here and that's amazing man thank you for sharing is is a lot of what you're saying especially about your undergraduate experiences is, is kind of similar to mine right so I didn't my family you know a lot of the guys on my on my on on in my family you know where I live you know from Pittsburgh right so this is Milltown or at least it was years ago and a lot of guys and I, I have lots of physicians in my family two of my first cousins they're twins one's a pediatrician One's an endocrinologist. I have an uncle that's, that's a retired surgeon. And, you know, you, you have all these different, or I have all these different types of, of, of people in their different professions in, in my family. But when I went to college, I didn't really know what the heck I wanted to do, man. You know, I was 17 years old. I'm like, ah, you know, exercise science. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, I like exercise. You know? I like exercise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm like, that sounds cool. Uh -huh. but I, I wasn't, I'm like, do I want to, do I want to be a researcher or do I want to be a clinician? And, um, you know, I, um, Brian Lenskis and Tro had me on their podcast a couple of weeks ago and I told my story, but cool. you know, what you're doing, dude, is, is really amazing stuff. And when I read your tweets, like, you know, I, I learn a lot from you, man. I really do. And I want to get into the science stuff with you, obviously. Um, so let's start with that. Let's talk. One of the things i so for me, and just, just kind of give you some, some context of where I'm coming from. Um, I saw you tweeted something recently about. Um, correct me, because I, I know I'm going to mess this up. Mm. It was about, I think it was resistance training versus endurance training, right? And I think you had worded it, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you, I don't know, you said something, endurance training is 
if you're, if you're going to choose one or something like change my mind, you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I tweeted, I won't remember the exact tweet, but I think it was your, your mile time is going to mm. predict your longevity better than your bench press will change my mind or yes. something like that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the one. So let's, let's, let's go down that road. So before, and listen, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. So a little bit of history about me. I, um, I was a competitive bodybuilder in my, in my, in my twenties. I did it for four consecutive years. You know, I, I weight resistance training has kind of always been my thing. I've never been, a, I never ran for really any purpose. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, not that, not that I, I don't think that you should, but let's talk about that. So what do you think? Yeah. So I, there's, I definitely had a, have a couple like caveats about that tweet. And afterwards, I even think I added a couple more tweets to it just because afterwards I realized, well, I, I got a lot of interaction, which I liked, you know, that's why I tweet out stuff because I'm like, like, I love interacting with people on Twitter. I mean, there's a lot of crap that goes on on Twitter, but I don't really feel like I'm that divisive. I mean, mm. you know, the mo that was probably like the most divisive tweet that I sent out because I had all the people, I had all the CrossFit people like coming at me and things like that and just like citing studies. But Basically what I meant, I, what it wasn't, what the tweet wasn't saying was that, oh, you should only run, you shouldn't lift because this is going to benefit like, your health span and lifespan. Not what I meant from that tweet. What I basically was thinking at the time of tweeting it was like, okay, if I have somebody who is pretty functional, and I'm not even coming at this from an aspect of it, like a real old person, but maybe, you know, just somebody like middle age and they have a decent amount of strength they have a decent amount of cardio. They're, they're pretty, they're functional. They're in shape. Like they're not like the sedentary couch potato. If you take somebody like that, who has a decent amount of strength, they're not, you know, they're not ripped. They're not a bodybuilder, but they, and they can also, you know, run, they do a bit of cardio, do a bit of weights, things like that. Maybe somebody who meets the physical activity recommendations. If you want to say, okay, if we want to focus on one of these things, that's going to maybe optimize, I'm just going to go with, health span but we could think about lifespan as well maybe i would think that boosting adding training to boost your mile time to make your mile time better is going to be the most bang for your buck compared to um building or maybe boosting your capacity to bench press say so say somebody who can i don't know what a good bench press is for like maybe a middle-aged man or woman but somebody who can bench press maybe like two times their body weight and maybe they can run like a nine minute mile i would say getting them down to a seven minute mile would be better than getting them to bench press say three times their body weight that was basically Got basically it. my idea so not like optimizing rather than oh we're choosing one or the other and so you know what happened after what happened after i tweeted that was all these people citing studies that i got i got a lot of uh replies with that study that was um i published in jama a while ago on the push-ups in the firefighters i think you know yes. they said it was like if they can do 40 push-ups it predicted you know some measure of health span or lifespan better than people who couldn't do 40 push-ups and then also a lot of studies um citing like grip strength as a predictor of mortality and i'm like yes of course i like i buy into these studies and i believe that but these are looking at, at least, especially when we're looking at something like grip strength, like it's a lot of the times measured in real old people. And so basically like, I mean, you're measuring grip strength, like really how, like if you don't have a decent amount of grip strength, you're in a pretty bad situation. And I feel like a lot of comorbidities are associated with that. I'm talking about people who are functional and looking to, you know, further optimize health span and lifespan, like people who are interested in like biohacking, like what's right. going to 
provide that extra optimization versus just like getting these people above like a threshold of function. That wasn't necessarily um, what I was interested in like arguing. I wasn't right. discounting the studies that show grip strength can predict mortality. Well, of course it does. I mean, I was, that's not what I was saying. Right. Um, well, you know, what's interesting too, and this is, you know, somebody like you who I, I think for like the, the typical lay person who maybe doesn't know how to interpret data, I guess, you know, well, they just, they, they read a headline or they read a they read a title, but hold on a minute, you know, look at this says about grip strength and maybe they don't read mm -hmm. the paper or they don't know how to interpret stuff. And I think that that's very important because, so let me give you an example. You know, um, I hear a lot of people say that the plural of anecdote is data. <laughs> now, see, I'm going to give you my opinion on this, right? And I'm, and I always say that I, I, I welcome being wrong because if I'm wrong, that means I get, a, I have an opportunity to learn right now. Here's my take as a clinician. If I have somebody that comes in and sees me, or if I have, I've been practicing for 13 years at this point, I've, you know, lots and lots of people. I always say that the people that do care about their anecdotes are our patients, right? Mm -hmm. So, but on the other hand though, is the plural of anecdote data? Yeah, I mean, it's an, that's an interesting, it's an interesting question. And I just think that like, it's a really hard distinction to make because, you know, you have anecdotes are definitely more powerful. I mean, and it's really hard. I think almost, you know, a lot of the times they override like the data because a lot of the times, you know, you see on social media, people will post a study, but then it's like, oh, well, this that's not what worked for me. Right. And then basically your own anecdote on social media or whatever will override whatever that study says. Cause to you, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you, if you throw a study at me that says so-and-so yada, 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 I mean, perfect example, um, you know, studies on, you know, a correlating LBL with cardiovascular disease or something right. like that. Well, right. you'll have people on keto and carnivore saying, oh, well, LDL doesn't matter. You know, my LDL goes up, but I'm healthier than ever. So right. Right. what, what does, you know, what does data matter in that case? So, right. I mean, I don't, it is hard. I mean, obviously as a scientist, you want to believe, you know, you base, you base policy and design and things like that on data, not anecdotes, but, right. um, right. But yeah, I don't, it's, I don't even think just with patients, you know, anecdotes matter just with anybody. I mean, as humans, it's the stories that really, that are most powerful for us. But I think that sometimes that, um, you know, really when you get to learn science, that's kind of something that you have to learn to override is like, right. okay, well, there are these anecdotes, but we have to look at the data because obviously these anecdotes are more powerful and stories that we want to, you know, like move us and affect us. But um, when it comes to decision-making, you know, anecdotes, you know, are really, or no, sorry, data are really, really what matters. And I think we see that also kind of with like, you know, what's happening with COVID and things like right. that. We've got a lot of anecdotes and a lot of, a lot of data and people who choose to ignore some and, you know, take others, but. Yeah. And I, I, I can tell you even clinically too, you know, with like the keto diet, I'm not, I'm not on the ketogenic diet. I, I would say <laughs> that I am, I am probably as far as diet goes, I, I am a meat eater for sure. Um, there are some vegetables that I can eat. Some really, really mess with me. And that come from a lot of trial and error in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I did do carnivore, but only because I had some kind of lingering gut things that weren't going away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been a low carb guy for probably 20 years, but I would say I'm, I, I do eat meat. I eat lots of fish. 
the vegetables that don't bug me and the occasional bourbon and Reese's cup. You know what I mean? That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. what you're, I, you're two vices. That, right. So bourbon and Reese's cups. Right. But I think that, but here's an example, you know, when you're talking, this is exactly the reason why data is important. Right. So I've had people that have come in that are on a ketogenic diet. I've, I've looked at, I've looked at their, their food logs. You know, we've done labs before and after, let's say a few months. And I've seen triglycerides get worse on a ketogenic diet, man. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I, but I've also seen where they've gotten better. So I think individuality is important. Um, so, I mean, you got to have the data though, right? I mean, we can't have the world run, the world running with, with anecdotes. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think, yeah. So that, that brings up a good point because it's like anecdotes don't, well, data accounts for individual variability, but anecdotes don't. So it's like, right. you have, I mean, a perfect example is sort of the studies where, you know, again, this is kind of something that not I've argued, but I've thought about a lot. You know, we have these studies where they call them people like exercise non-responders. So it's like you put, you take 20, 30 people, put them through this exercise study. You're going to have some people who don't change. Maybe if we look at something like VO2 max, they don't get any better. Some people who get better. And then even some people who get worse, which doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, you'll have what data does is account for all of that. And so you get the statistical average, which probably in a study like that, if it's, you know, a well enough designed study, you're going to get a net probably increase in like aerobic fitness or something like that. If you just look at anecdotes, you know, say you look at the individual data in there, you're going to see them going everywhere. You're going to mm -hmm. see some people go down, some people go up. And so in that case, like if you just took the anecdotes from that study, you'd say, oh, well, exercise training doesn't work. But statistically on average, it does work. And, you know, at least in regards to that aspect, I think that, a lot of the times when either you see like a non-responder or something weird, it's just because at least in, you know, regards to exercise, maybe you didn't give them enough of like a stimulus. I mean, there's people have individual responses to everything like a ketogenic diet, you know, people whose triglycerides will go up or down. Um, with exercise kind of, there's this, you know, not to get too off topic, but there's like this argument or there have been papers published where um, they're basically saying that, the people who don't respond to exercise, you're just not giving them enough or, you know, you just need to give them more stimulus because I mean, the concept of an exercise non-responder doesn't make any sense to me anyway. I mean, if you train, if you train right. hard enough, your body's going to adapt and it's right. going to go, it's going to go in the right direction. Like to say that I'm going to do eight weeks of a study and get worse is just like a statistical fluke probably. I mean, or something wrong with a measurement and whatever, whatever you're measuring. But um, anyways, I'm just, you know, that just to make the point that, the variability with individuals, whether it be genetic or, you know, something lifestyle related is it's so there's so much variability in everything. And that's what, that's what anecdotes are, you know, just right. how, how this treatment differed between you and I, but when we use data is really what we get, you know, the population on average, this is what's going to happen. And that's really what's important, at least when you're designing things for a lot of people right. that are going to affect a lot of people. Yeah, that makes total sense. And even things too, like, uh, like blood glucose and things like that, you know, if you have one night of lousy sleep or if you're stressed mm -hmm. out, you know, all those things change. And I remember um, a while back, I think I may have been doing like a multiple day long fast, something like that. And somebody had commented to me like, you know, are, are you thinking about Reese's cups or something like that? And you had commented <laughs> to that. You said, well, if you're thinking about it, you broke your fast already. So I mean, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's legit. That's, like, that's, mm -hmm. that's true for sure. So what I would yeah. like to do, um, so what about the differences or are there any, Brady, with um, like endothelial function differences when we're training maybe endurance versus uh, resistance training? And I also have a, uh, I don't hope I don't forget this question. I, somebody asked me a while back 
about, um, you know, they were talking about pericardium. I can't remember the, the paper that they sent me. They were talking about the pericardium, endocardium versus um, in, in changes in resistance training versus um, endurance training. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So as far as like the heart goes, I mean, I don't, I haven't read too many studies on that, but really as far as let's think, I'll talk more about, because I know that data do exist on something other, something else that we study in our lab, which is basically our, which is uh, arterial stiffness. So stiff, stiffening um, of arteries versus function of the arteries. I mean, they're definitely interrelated because they, in, in one, in some one way or another, they deal with the structure of the arteries. But, um, and this kind of also relates to what my meaning behind that, you know, endurance versus like resistance training was. So when we look at, you know, I guess that first is beneficial to just look at what kind of stresses each of these are. So when we do endurance exercise, we are increasing blood flow, increasing heart rate, cardiac output, all of that. And so what that does is not that resistance training doesn't do this because obviously you have blood flowing and things like that. But as long as, or as far as aerobic training goes, what you're getting is um, blood flow increasing through your arteries, increases shear stress on the endothelium, which is the inner lining of your arteries. And you know, that, causes vasodilation and shear stress also just causes these structural changes, which in the long run will benefit endothelial function. Your, you know, your arteries will become more elastic. Um, nitric oxide, which is the primary molecule that vasodilates arteries, um, you'll kind of boost your capacity. You'll boost that molecule in general, just through the shear stress. Um, but you will also boost your capacity to, um, just create nitric oxide, um, something called nitric oxide bioavailability. And so there are, I mean, there are numerous studies, you know, more than, more than you can count on aerobic exercise training benefits, endothelial function and arterial stiffness. And by benefit, I mean, it will reduce your arterial stiffness and then increase your endothelial function um, with aging even more so. So exercise training can reverse stiffness and endothelial dysfunction with aging. Um, and it can also prevent the reduction in endothelial function and then arterial stiffness with aging. And then if we look at resistance training, the data are less conclusive, but I think overall um, what most of the studies show, I don't know, I haven't read much on endothelial function, so that's something I'll kind of have to look at. Um, but at least in regards to arterial stiffness, some data do show that resistance training actually will increase arterial stiffness. And it makes sense because you think just about what kind of stress resistance exercise is versus aerobic. Um, resistance is primarily just, you know, these large dramatic pressure increases, um, you know, you're right. bearing down, at least right. if you're doing really heavy lifting stuff, you know, not like um, calisthenics or anything right. like that, but like if you're really doing like really heavy lifting. So they've done studies with resistance training and arterial stiffness will actually increase. So if they'll measure, Usually arterial stiffness can be measured. Um, they can measure like the carotid artery using ultrasound or they'll do carotid to femoral pulse wave velocity. And just for people who are wondering, maybe listeners, what pulse wave velocity is, what you'll basically do is measure um, the onset of the pulse in something like the carotid artery as well as the femoral artery. Um, and then you'll kind of take the difference, the time delay between the pulse wave arrival at the carotid and femoral you'll divide that by the distance, which will measure um, kind of over the skin and then right. just divide that and you'll get a velocity measurement. And velocity, stiffness theory, um, a lot of equations kind of go into that that are 
far above theory. you know engineers and people like much smarter than myself have developed but um just like measures or mri based measures um studies have shown that resistance training will increase arterial stiffness so from a gen and then looking at the heart as well so not just the peripheral arteries right. i would expect that you would also well actually i wouldn't even just expect there have been studies so if we look at structural changes to the heart with endurance training um both can result in what you would call hypertrophy so right. cardiac hypertrophy your heart is enlarged but the difference is in the type of hypertrophy that it is. And right. so aero aerobic exercise training is um, what is called eccentric hypertrophy. Basically, the muscle will grow outward. So your left ventricle gets, your left ventricle gets larger and the wall gets um, a little thicker, but it's outward. And so your ventricle size is actually increasing. And that is a lot of the time, well, the primary reason why you see elite athletes or well-trained people with um, extremely low heart rates. And right. you know, while in a clinical population, a uh, bradycardic heart can be you know, detrimental. When it's in athletes, it's kind of an exercise-induced bradycardia, and it's not, you know, it's a physiological adaptation rather than a pathological adaptation. So it's like, you know, every time I go somewhere like to a doctor's appointment and they're taking my heart rate, they're like, uh -huh. oh, are you an endurance runner? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> because my heart rate's in like low 30s or something like that. Yeah, I'm like, are yeah. you dead? <laughs> like, no, it's just, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's just due to the fact that the ventricle increases and, you know, the stroke volumes are so high. And so cardiac output, heart rate and stroke volume, heart rate goes down, stroke volume goes up if you will have the same cardiac output. Um, and then on the other hand, resistance training. So back to those huge loads, what you will actually get is called concentric hypertrophy. So ventricle, the walls get thicker, but, and they also grow thicker inward. So the ventricle may actually shrink a little, which would reduce your stroke volume or your left ventricular capacity. Um, and that is, that type of remodeling is, you know, while it's, I guess, physiological because it's based on the type of stress you're putting on it, um, that is actually adverse, you know, adverse, causes adverse effects to the heart and adverse function. Um, there have been some interesting, so I'm trying to remember, I don't know the name of the study, but there's a researcher at, he's actually a doctor at um, Harvard Medical School, and he has access to like all these, all the Harvard athletes. And he has done these studies on like football players versus rowers. He studied them as freshmen and then as seniors okay. and did um, some cardiac imaging. You know, he did echocardiography and things like that. And he was able to show, he had this awesome paper just showing what types of changes just from freshman to senior year occurred in like the football players hearts which you know they're basically the resistance athletes right and then in the rowers hearts and it was basically what you would expect like rowers hearts got bigger but they were going outward football players hearts were um having that concentric hypertrophy kind of these adverse changes um it was pretty a pretty interesting paper so maybe if i can find that we can pretty cool man we can reference it but yeah i think uh dr aaron baggish he's uh he was yeah harvard med um but yeah, some interesting studies on that. So, you know, that just, you know, goes back to what I was thinking of in terms of cardiovascular health, aerobic exercise, you know, if you, for long-term, long-term health, things like that, it's definitely at least what the data show are beneficial. Sure. But I think that you should do a combination of both because again, going back to if studies show that if you combine the resistance training with the aerobic training, you don't get the increase in arterial stiffness, you can lower it. Got so it. as long as you have some some endurance work in there. Um, it's beneficial for overall cardiovascular health function, nice. things like that. <clears throat> you know, I, I saw a video. There was a guy, I think his name was on uh, 
His name is Larry Wheels. He's a, uh, a, a, a bodybuilder, lifter. Mm. He had a recent video I saw where he was deadlifting. And the dude, I'm not kidding you, man. You can look it up on YouTube. He started, mm. he started bleeding out of his head. Yikes. Yeah. Out of, his, out, of his head, <laughs> out of his head, brother. I'm like, what the, how do you, how do you, how do you even bleed out of your head like that? He, and he, here's that's, the thing. He didn't even cut himself. I'm not, I'm not kidding. He just started bleeding out of his head. Anyway, that's insane. the comments yeah, were like, dude, yeah. <laughs> that's scary. I mean, yeah. Yeah, when it comes down to it, you know, I mean, anything, the extremes of anything aren't that great. I mean, I'm obviously biased to endurance training, but I'm by no means going to fool myself thinking that, you know, people, people who are these ultra marathon runners are probably benefiting their, their health. I mean, I think that there's a point where I don't want to say diminishing returns, but I think there's a point where, you know, the benefits, the risks might even outweigh the benefits. I mean, I don't necessarily... I think that, that we need more data based on, um, you know, the long-term effects of like endurance exercise. Some, some stuff has shown that, you know, you can get like fibrotic hearts. They've been finding like fibrotic hearts in people who have done extreme intense endurance exercise for a long time. I, mean, I, I think that that exists, um, but I'm not so sure. I don't think that it would be any less prevalent in like these heavy lifters. But, um, you know, if we're trying to optimize, when it comes down to it, when we're trying to optimize whether it be probably health span or lifespan you know you're gonna want to be somewhere in the middle maybe it skewed more towards doing too much but there's definitely a point where there is too much when it comes to you know optimizing that at least but a lot of athletes aren't concerned with that they're more concerned with performance than we are you know boosting you know health span right you know one of the things i've uh seen you talk pretty more frequently, I guess, on Twitter is the uh, relationship with, with sleep and endothelial function. So I'll be honest with you, the past, you know, what's, what's funny is for me, right, because I'm not a scientist and I'm, I'm, I, you know, I don't, I only know some things if I'm being honest, you know, but what I find very interesting the past couple of years is that what I do is I'll dive into something. And again, it's only because I want to learn, you know, and for me, how I learn is, is following people like you or reading on my own and, and things like that. But for me, what I'll do is I'll spend a, a while on a topic. Maybe it's nutrition. Like for me at this mm. point, I'm thinking to myself, you know, how much more do I need to learn about intermittent fasting? Right. So then I'll move to something else. Like for the last couple of years for me, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, it's been sleep, circadian rhythm, you know, um, early time restricted feeding. But what is, what is your take on sleep and, and um, endothelial function? Yeah. So you know, this is, this has been a big topic for me lately. And it's actually what my dissertation project is kind of going to be focused on. We just nice. submitted, um, we just submitted a study that will hopefully be approved in the next couple of weeks. Um, so I can, you know, start my dissertation, hopefully whenever, you know, kids are coming back to school. So we'll have, we'll have participants, but um, yeah, this has been a big topic for me. It basically, it started off because we, we did a study a couple of years ago, it was actually, you know, an energy drink based study, but we had this arm where it was kind of my idea just because I had been looking at this data and kind of been interested um, in the relationship with like poor sleep. Um, it, when I talk about sleep here, I'm kind of referring to quantity rather than quality or anything else, because there are lots of different studies dealing with, you know, REM sleep and endothelial function or sleep disturbance. Um, and so my kind of primary focus is just sleep duration. So like how many hours are you sleeping? And, you know, there were, there were a lot of data and there still are even coming out recently, you know, poor short sleep duration is linked to cardiovascular diseases. Um, I don't know the exact study I saw that got me kind of interested in this, but 
long story short, I wanted to do this. I added this arm to our study that um, our collaborator generously allowed us to do where we basically just looked at how does one night of total sleep deprivation influence endothelial function the next day. And so basically a 24 hours of sleep deprivation. So they would, they would wake up in the morning the day before, and then they would come in to the lab at night so we could make sure they didn't sleep. And then the next morning we would measure their endothelial function. And the way in which we do that is through a technique just briefly called flow mediated dilation. And so what we will do is um, we image their brachial artery using a vascular ultrasound and we inflate a blood pressure cuff on their arm to induce ischemia for five minutes. We release that cuff and then we'll measure the blood flow through their brachial artery after that releases. And what the release of the, um, what the, release of the cuff does is cause a rapid increase in blood flow back through the arm and that will cause vasodilation. And so measuring that dilation capacity is a marker of endothelial function. And it also is very predictive of like future cardiovascular disease. So better dilation, better endothelial function um, in general. Got so that's kind of how we measure it. And so what we just did with that study was simple. Like I just said, you know, total sleep deprivation for 24 hours. How does that affect endothelial function? And we did that study and found some pretty interesting results actually, which we published as an abstract and we'll hopefully, you know, publish as a paper. But basically, and this was in healthy, just young men, um, a single day of total sleep deprivation reduced endothelial function uh, measured as FMD by about 50%. Which was pretty interesting. And so, and you know, in healthy young people, I mean, a lot of times, especially in college students, you may expect them to sort of be protected against this because they're young, you know, right. they're healthy, they have sort of these redundant protective mechanisms, right, right. their antioxidant capacity is okay. So we did that study and that basically led the way to designing a full-blown study on the effects of sleep deprivation. Um, I don't wanna discuss like too many of the details just because like we haven't started it and obviously, you know, it's, it's a pretty competitive field, but we're gonna do a study adding some other arms and things like that to it, which should be super interesting. Um, but in regards to overall, you know, there have been studies published similar to ours where whether they do sleep deprivation where it's continuously for maybe 24 to 40 hours or um, shift work. You know, there have been a lot of studies on shift work where, uh, you know, medical professionals will work a night shift or like a 24 hour extended shift and then even just sleep restriction. So they will do say five to seven days of like limiting the sleep uh, opportunity to like three to four hours per night. All of those, um, you know, using various measures of vascular function and things like that have shown that it's pretty detrimental, um, pretty consistently. And um, so all of that just, you know, there's a lot of mechanisms involved that necessarily that really haven't been, haven't been investigated, which is hopefully, you know, a future area of research, whether it's for me or other people, but um, yeah, just showing, you know, the fact that just getting enough sleep is pretty powerful, you know, regardless of the type of sleep you're getting, um, just getting enough sleep each night. I mean, you know, consistently, at least on a regular basis, one night's not going to kill you, but right. um, on a regular basis, just getting the proper amount of sleep, at least what this research and doing this has shown me is that it's really, really crucial. That's, that's incredible, man. We, so can you go over that one more time, uh, Brady, mm -hmm. the, the part about the 50% you said, one night what was the what was that again yeah so 24 hours 24 a hours. single a whole day basically without sleep 24 hours reduces endothelial function by about 50 percent wow, and we had we nice. yeah we published that as an abstract they had about 
I think the average was about a six to 7% dilation that was on our baseline night after a full night of sleep. And then, um, after the sleep deprivation, it went down to about like three and a half, something like that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty, pretty profound just after a single night. You know, what I find interesting too is, um, you know, the whole, the whole idea of, uh, regarding sleep, you know, like I said, for the past year or two, I've been diving really deep, um, into the whole circadian thing. And, you know, um, regarding eating, when's the best time to eat, uh, what time's the best time to start eating, even, even things mm-hmm. like, um, the types of foods. Like I remember we, we were in a thread the other day, me, you, Bill, a couple other people about, um, eating carbohydrates in the sun, mm. you know, mm-hmm. things like this. And, and <laughs> yeah. I think, well, I'll be honest with you, man. When I first hear things like this, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like the, if I'm assuming everybody kind of thinks the same way about certain things, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I tend to think that I have an open mind about things and some things that if I can, so like somebody asked me about acupuncture um, recently and I, I honestly don't know much about it. So if I don't know, I'm like, I, you know, I just don't know about it. You know, I won't disregard it because I think it's foo. I just don't know. But, um, the whole idea, I guess, of, of biohacking and, you know, I, my, my mother's one brother, my uncle Anthony, he's awesome, man. He, he, he's always talking to me about, he's like, so Nick, you know, what are your thoughts about, you know, uh, you know, he'll ask me a question that, that seems kind of wild maybe to the lay person about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, certain supplements or antioxidants or, you know, saunas and things like that. So I guess, what, what are your thoughts? Well, first, let me say this. My general view about health is low-hanging fruit stuff first, right? You know, meaning... For example, I had Dr. Uh, Michael Meehan, MD, on my podcast a while ago. And we talked a lot about low-hanging fruit, like so good food, sleep, sun, exercise, you know, things like that, good, you know, stress management. So those are things that I think that most people can agree we should be doing regularly. But what, when it comes to certain things, I guess, you know, um, certain intervention options, or I guess, quote-unquote, biohacking, or whatever word that you want to use, you know, saunas, um, grounding, things like that. Where, where do you think that that stuff fits in or what are your thoughts on that regarding cardiovascular health or endothelial function? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's a good point that you just made about like the low hanging fruit because I know, I mean, if people don't have, you know, their general nutrition, their general sleep, none of the other stuff is going to matter. Like, you know, you can't, you can't hack yourself out of like shitty sleep and a bad diet. You know, if, if you're not eating well, you know, just like clean up your diet and like get eight hours a night. And then, you know, that, that will probably solve like the first right. 50% of exactly. your problem. So yeah, but you know, obviously, yeah, people like you and me and you know, the people that we interact with on Twitter kind of have all the low hanging fruit covered, you know, we've been doing this stuff for a while. Like we know how to eat, we know how to sleep and we're exercising. And so now it's like, you know, you're looking for, you know, how to get to the next level and things like that. So, you know, I think in terms of like, you know, this is an area where, you know, hope, I think I would really be interested in like researching all just kind of the weird, like, you know, this is obviously, this is like my dream, like lab one day is just to like set up a lab to study all the crazy crap that nobody wants to study and actually right. see if like it works right, right, right. because a lot of the stuff isn't studied. So for instance, like, I don't know if you want to see like, you know, how does eating carbs in the sun, like yeah. you were talking about the other day, how does that right. affect, you know, your, right, whatever, right. your vascular health. Yeah. But like, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of there's some things that have shown to be pretty beneficial you know at least in terms of like the sauna super powerful in boosting cardiovascular health i mean man the studies that they do on that are pretty 
pretty awesome in terms of like showing how I can lower blood pressure and things like that, which totally makes sense. I mean, it's a sauna is kind of an exercise medic. If you really think about it, like you're in there, you're sweating more than, you know, more than you might probably during an exercise session, your heart rate is similar. Um, your, you know, respiration rate's going to be up. So, you know, that, that thing, I, I mean, sauna, it sounds like a biohack, but that's one of those things that it's just like people have been doing that for centuries. Right. Um, the sauna use, at least, you know, people in Finland and Norway, they're kind of doing all the studies on that. Um, very interesting topic. Rhonda Patrick, like, is in love with the sauna. She talks about yeah. it a lot. So um, I like listening to her stuff on that. Um, everything else, you know, I think I'm like you, I'm really interested in the the time timing of feeding and things like that. I think for metabolic neurological cardiovascular health, like that's super important. I mean, I've even experienced this, you know, going back to anecdotes myself, I just in preference, I mean, I I hate eating late at night. I mean, sometimes I do it. What, you know, what, what's late to me might not be late to other people, but like, even if I eat at like between seven and eight, if we eat dinner, which is kind of like typical, I mean, we usually finish eating dinner by maybe like seven 30, but if it's like after eight and we're finishing dinner, I'm like, Oh man, I'm going to have like shitty sleep tonight. Like I'm not going to be able to get to sleep well, or at least I'm going to have to go for a walk or something because right. I mean, you can feel it. I mean, you know, like, you know, if I finish eating three to four hours before I go to bed, I feel a lot better. I sleep a lot better. I mean, you know, like you, you can just feel it. Um, yes. but I think, you know, relating this all back to kind of sleep is like the circadian rhythms in everything are just super important. I mean, aligning those, aligning ourselves with like the day and night cycle. I think that one thing that all of these things have in common, whether it's eating or sleeping is like grounding us in our human chronological rhythms, chronobiological rhythms that we evolved in. Like I'm definitely far from an expert in this area. I have actually interviewed a woman who was on my podcast a while ago, Dr. Karen Esser, who's like an expert in kind of circadian biology. Super fascinating. Like the area is so interesting and I wish, you know, I hope to learn more about it. Yes. I mean, I know a general, general amount, but um, just circadian biology is so important. And I think that's one of the reasons why these health, you know, the health benefits of time-restricted feeding, getting proper sleep, even getting proper sleep at like the right time um, in terms of, you know, I'm obviously speaking from like a cardiovascular health standpoint, but just right. anything like metabolic health, if we think of like obesity, diabetes, whatever, even cognitive diseases, um, just circadian biology is so important. And I think that's where fasting and intermittent fasting in particular and time-restricted feeding kind of plays like such a big role, just like, you know, when you wake up, because, you know, food, food serves as like a time cue. So it's like, mm, yeah. you know, if you... If you wake up, it's one of these things they call like a, I think it's a German word. It's a Zeitgeber. It's called like, so basically if you eat at a certain time or exercise at a certain time, exercise is another one. Um, And so is light. Obviously it's the biggest one, but they'll entrain your circadian rhythms to a certain time. And I think that's why, you know, if you're, why breakfast, you know, they say, you know, there's a lot of debate on whether you should eat it or not. I mean, it might be the most important meal of the day because you're, starting those circadian clocks in the morning. And as long as you're not eating, you know, at like midnight, then it might, might be the most important meal of the day. Um, yeah, but you're, you're all into the early TRF. And so am I really, I mean, when I can do it, I right. prefer it. You know, if I could eat, if I could eat early, early lunch and early dinner ish, I'd be much more happy than eating like a lunch and then a late dinner. Um, just from the perspective of just feeling like a lot better and optimizing like my workouts the next morning and things like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so, you know, as far as biohacking goes, I mean, kind of the things that I do, or at least I've been interested in are the time-restricted feeding and the sauna use and kind of the things like that. And then, 
and then sleep, you know, it's not really, sleep isn't really a biohack either. It's just <laughs> evolutionary need, but it's funny how it sleep. becomes a biohack because people sleep habits are so bad that it's like, man, oh. if you're getting enough sleep, it's like a superpower, you know? Right. Well, you know, what's interesting about the, um, the, the time restricted feeding thing. And, and, you know, I, I had told this story when I was on with Tro and Brian a couple of weeks ago, I, for me, for a long time, you know, I was doing the, um, kind of a, a midday to early evening eating. And then I switched to one meal a day for a while. And for mm. me, just for socially in my schedule, it just made more sense for me to eat later in the day. But then, mm. you know, you start reading things and I know Bill real big about, about the, a, lot, a lot of other guys too, gals. But then, you know, what I did was and anecdotally again, for me, when I switched to earlier, there was a noticeable difference, mostly in sleep. And, mm -hmm. um, you read the data, you know, you follow really smart people and you, they share their information. I'm like, okay, yeah, this just makes sense. And it works for me. So I'm just going to continue with that. Now, let me ask you personally, do you, what do you think about training fasted? Does it depend on the type of training that you're doing? What do you think? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I'll, I'll say right now that pretty much right now, 100, well, I, so sometimes it's, 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 uh, it's difficult because sometimes I'll train most of the time I'll train twice a day. So kind of how my schedule is right now, I'm either doing like two cycling workouts a day or doing a running workout in the morning and then a cycling workout in the afternoon. Um, I'm currently just running every other day just because I've been dealing with some injuries and stuff, but I'll do, I'll do every other day, probably like 10 to 12 miles and then do a cycling workout, like maybe another hour in the afternoon, something like that. So all of, all of my morning workouts are fasted and then all of my evening workouts are not because I like I gotta eat during the day. Eat something, right, <laughs> so right. yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna work out in the morning fasted, not you know eat anything all day. I'd be I'd be pretty wasted by the end of the day. Right, but um, right. yeah. So all my morning workouts are fasted. In general, you know that is more not necessarily from a perspective of trying to optimize anything in um, rather than just a personal preference and like feeling better and not necessarily, you know, the way I see it at least is like a trade off in the morning. Do, if I have a race, if I'm going to race, I'm going to eat something. Um, right. But, you know, I don't really race that much. Races aren't going on right now. Um, so, you know, how much more benefit am I going to get if I wake up and have, say, like a banana maybe in a granola bar before right. my workout or do it fasted? I'm probably not going to have that big of a difference in performance. Um, and so for me, it's just not really worth eating and maybe waiting a little longer to run. I would rather just kind of wake up, have some coffee, you know, do my business and get out there. Right. Um, I generally feel okay. I mean, if I've eaten enough the day before, eat, had a pretty good dinner. I mean, I think that your glycogen stores and things like that are obviously replenished. And then I also feel like I've done enough fasted training where I am able to, you know, burn fat for fuel versus carbohydrates. If I do not have any carbohydrates um, available, which isn't going to be the case because I'm not working out, you know, longer than two and a half or three hours in the morning. So I got enough glycogen to do it. Um, and then most of my workouts right now aren't that intense either. And so I'm probably in a, you know, whatever we want to call a fat burning state anyway. I mean, I'm, you know, going between 65 maybe maybe 60 and 70 percent of maximal heart rate so it's nothing it's nothing too crazy i mean just like longer steady endurance runs right. um so yeah just you know to answer your question yes i do most of my all of my workouts in the morning are fasted besides coffee so you know if you want to argue coffee breaks your fast which it doesn't but um <laughs> right right exactly and then and then yeah in the evening you know i won't 
I'll have like a decent lunch during the day and then my workouts in the evening. It's usually like a kind of a low carbish lunch. Um, I'll have some fruit, but I won't necessarily eat any like rice or potatoes or anything like that. You know, I'll have some fruit, I'll have some nuts and some eggs and things like that. And then I'll do my morning workout and then dinner's basically just like shoving whatever you can down right. your throat to make right. sure you, you get your caloric needs in for the day. Yeah. Um, you know, so, but yeah, I, I really, I've always done really fasted workouts. I mean, even when I was competing collegiately and things like that, I mean, I would sometimes, I, I kind of went through phases though, you know, sometimes I would have a banana, nothing, not like a huge breakfast or anything, but you know, banana, like cliff bars were kind of my go-to. I mean, those were really great for, great for training runs and things like that. Cause they didn't sit heavily in your stomach, but um, really my preference has always just been to do just do the morning workout fast. And then I never really have noticed any, you know, some days are better than others, but most of the time, you know, if you train yourself to do it, um, feel really good and feel fine. I mean, running on an empty stomach feels a lot better than kind of having some stuff in there. Yeah. You know, I, I think for me too, I feel the same way. You know, I, I you know, I do mostly these days up, but just doing kind of as far as resistance go, mm-hmm. those just like kind of body weight stuff. But I train Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and I do that like four to five times a week. And that's very, very high intensity. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I cannot eat. I tried it last week because the training schedule has been a little different now with everything going on at the Academy. So I ate before about an hour and a half before I went and it was just some eggs, you know, just some mm-hmm. eggs. And um, I went in and I, I just had food in my stomach. And it's just, I don't know if it's a mental thing or it's just an actual, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm with you on that, man. If I train, I, I got to go fast. And typically I, with the way my schedule is, I can kind of do my own thing and, and it's convenient for me to do that. But um, yeah, I have something about just having food in my stomach and training. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, but then, you know, it, it definitely comes down to preference, but I mean, again, if we go back to kind of this like anecdote versus data, I don't think really think that there's any argument that, so I'm just going to speak from maybe an endurance, but perspective, but I mean, even if we look at something like Brazilian jujitsu, I think that if we were really trying to say like, what's going to produce the best performance, you're not going to perform your best fasted. I think, I mean, some sort of carbohydrate, some sort of um, nutritional supplement before right. is going to boost performance. I mean, I don't think that there's any question about that. The only times where I think it would provide a performance detriment is if, you know, like you were just saying, you had gastrointestinal distress or something like that. Like, obviously, if my stomach gets effed up after I eat something, I'm going to run worse. Um, right, right. But I've never really had a problem with that. I mean, there have been, you know, I have had periods where I've eaten things before workouts or before big races. It's, you know, nothing major. I mean, I'll never have anything like super high in protein. So like a good example would basically just be eating like a peanut butter sandwich, maybe with like a banana on it. I mean, something, the decent amount of carbs, maybe a tiny little bit of fat, but you don't really want much. Yeah, man. Oh, it does sound good right now. (laughs) Bread is not really something I eat much now. I mean, I eat plenty of carbs and things like that, but Mm. bread is just not something that I eat. But like, man, every once in a while, like a peanut butter sandwich on some nice like whole grain bread, man, it just sounds good. It does. But like. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's this whole argument. I don't think as far as a, there's no argument as far as performance goes, whether like, should you fast if you want to optimize performance? Like, no, I mean, you could, you're going to get certain beneficial adaptations if you're fasted in a workout. And I think it's useful to use in certain situations like, oh, easy 10 mile run. Okay. I, you know, you can do a fasted, but if I got like a tempo run or, you know, I'm going to go real long or real far or fast, something like that. I mean, eat something beforehand for sure. Right. For right. sure. 
Yeah. And I, I think that what's, what's funny is all the guys I train with are always like, how do you do, how do you do this fast? And I'm just, I, but, you, but, but I think that, I think like you said though, um, if now that I've been eating earlier, because my training schedule with the, at the, for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, like I said, is, is, um, it is what it is. So I can make my lifestyle kind of fit that because my schedule, because mm-hmm. the way that, you know, I, I spent a lot of years kind of with my clinic getting things in place to where uh, selfishly where, you know, I wanted to have more free time and time with my family. You know, I have, I have a five-year-old boy, my wife. So we can kind of, we've gotten to the point now where we're managing staff, you know, the clinic kind of does its own thing, but we're managing staff. Like I said, before we got on, uh, on the air here, I, I pretty much the people that I work with is, is virtual, but um, no, what you're saying makes total sense. It, w- it would, it would seem like it's just better as far as performance goes to have something in, in your stomach. So I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, for um, sure. I will, I'll tell you what though. So I, um, something that I have experimented with and I guess it was like, I want to say the last couple of months, but it was actually in February. So I got my hands on some of the HVMN ketone, okay. ketone ester, man, I took, I, uh, took, I think one and a half servings of those. I did it before a half marathon race that I ran and man, I, you know, I had never had them and I was like a bit skeptical, just because like, you know, you hear all the things like, Oh, boosting energy, boosting performance. And like, obviously I think it would, but I, it was a very unique feeling and I have never performed better or felt better during a race than after I had that. I mean, I, I had one of my better performances like ever. And I was pretty, I won't say I was out of shape, but I wasn't, I ran considerably faster than I thought I would. Um, but it wasn't necessarily like the time that I ran, but just how I kind of felt. Um, but yeah, it was, I was, I was impressed. So I was like, nice. it, I, it sold me on ketone <laughs> esters for like performance. I mean, there's a lot of research coming out on them, the BHB esters and, you know, their potential effects on increasing performance. I think in terms of at least long duration stuff like that, I mean, it was a half marathon, um, pretty impressive. So I was, uh, nice. as far as nutrition, I think I had one a serving and a half of one of those with, uh, with a banana, like before the race. And yeah, it was, I was cranking. So it was, you mean, it was pretty cool. You didn't become a diabetic immediately after that banana? No, I didn't. Shockingly. <laughs> you know, Ketones what's, and carbs, man. Oh my goodness, dude. <laughs> you know, what's funny though is, you know, I, 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 I bust chops on Twitter all the time and, you know, I'm, I certainly have my biases, right. But you know, what's interesting is, um, even messing with myself and being my own kind of guinea pig with certain things, you know, I, I think one of the things before we get off, um, Brady and man, it's really good talking to you, dude. And this is really cool. I wish I could. I'm gonna have you on again, man, because this is awesome. Yeah, man. But just w- do a round two anytime. <laughs> for sure. But um, I, I think that in general, you know, so just your thoughts real quick here, I guess, on um I think that we have an overeating problem in in, in the West, I should say. You know what I mean? I don't want to blame carbs for diabetes. Um, I don't want to blame fat for diabetes, but I think we're overeating. And my opinion on why we're overeating is because we're eating foods that are making us overeat. What are your thoughts on that? Any, any? Yeah, yeah, that's very, you know, an interesting topic. And this is like, you know, something, I guess I wouldn't say I've been in like arguments with people on this on Twitter, but kind of, you know, because like you just said, there is this bias towards like carbohydrates and people will think like, oh, it's the carbs. But, you know, I think what you say is very it shines really a light on the actual kind of the root of the problem. You know, it's not like the carbs are making us fat, but it's how the carbs are changing. You know, I'm not an expert in this, but how the carbs are changing our appetite hormones and how they're changing our satiety. So like, you know, if you eat food and it doesn't, you know, fill you up, you're just going to eat more and it's going to change these, you know, hormones and it's going to change these neurotransmitters and it's going to make you eat more. So, 
it's just interesting because, you know, yes, the argument, I agree with you that we eat too much. I mean, I don't think some people would say maybe that's not even the issue that like independently of overeating carbs could cause obesity, which maybe in some people I think sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I buy into the calories in calories out model, but I mean, in general, we have to think about that. If you're taking in more energy than you're expending, then you're going to gain weight and vice versa. If you're not taking in as much energy as you're burning, you're going to lose weight. Um, I mean, obviously hormones and things like that will dictate storage and all that. But I think, you know, yes, I, I overall agree that we have an overeating problem that is probably the result of our food environment, whether it's the carbohydrates or something else. I mean, I just think, I don't even think that you need, you know, studies on how carbohydrates affect society to make the conclusion that, you know, I mean, there's food everywhere and right it's everywhere. bad food. It's bad food everywhere. I mean, people, people just eat too much. I mean, I don't care what's causing it. I mean, people, right. people are eating too much. I mean, you, you know, people will say like, I don't know, somebody's obese and it's like, oh, it's because they're eating the wrong stuff. I'm like, have you ever seen a, somebody who's overweight, who's like not overeating? I mean, I've never met a person who's overweight, who doesn't eat a lot. I mean, yeah, it's that's not, a great point. I don't meet somebody who's overweight and they're like, you know, I just, I don't, I barely eat anything, but all I eat is like carbs. And that's why I'm fat. It's like, no, that's not, I mean, if you eat a thousand calories of carbs per day, you're probably going to lose weight. I don't care. Maybe not a thousand, but say like 800 calories per day, even if it's a hundred percent carbohydrates, you're probably going to lose weight because you're eating 800 calories per day. I I mean, mean, (laughs) didn't the guy, didn't the guy write a book called the pizza diet? I mean, I think there's a book called the pizza diet. The guy ate nothing but pizza. I'm not kidding. Pizza. Yeah, right? yeah. 1,200 calories a day, maybe for like three months, the dude lost weight. And interestingly too, like white potatoes are like one of the most satiating foods that you can mm-hmm. possibly eat, you know? Oh, so, yeah. so, I mean, uh-huh. uh, anyway, I just, I was just thinking, you know, like I said, I, 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 I have my biases, but the only reason why I, you know, when I, when I say things, that's why I don't, I don't, I don't recommend too many things. You won't see me recommending things on Twitter, right? Like I won't tell people that, you know, that, well, you should be eating this or you mm-hmm. should be eating that. I'll, I'll give my experiences and, you know, I'll kind of make funny little jabs here and there, but you know, it's not, you know, I think that the problem is overeating, but also too, for example, um, one of our, our doctors is a radiologist, but he's also an addiction specialist. And we can't also, there, there's, there's definitely an emotional aspect of this as well, you know, overeating. I personally cannot identify with that, but I know a lot of people do. So I know a lot of uh, clinics are, you know, they're, they're, they're sending out the psychiatrist or addiction specialists and things like that. So I think that that's something that, you know, if people do have those issues that they have to get that, because I'm, that's not my territory, right? Like I, that's not what I, I'm not qualified to go down there with those people. So anyway. Um, yeah. And I guess just my final thoughts on that. So like, you know, a lot of people in the exercise kind of community, get a lot of flack because we kind of have this, you know, eat less or uh, eat less, move more kind of thing. And people are like, Oh, that's all. That's their like one size fits all approach to solving obesity. But I'm like, man, I mean, if we really think about it, you know, it sounds, it sounds too, it sounds oversimplistic, but it's like, okay, if you take somebody and really actually have them eat less and they start to exercise a little bit more, I mean, man, that's going to have profound effects on their metabolic health. I mean, we're not going to solve, probably not going to solve the obesity crisis by getting everybody to take like 10,000 steps per day. I mean, this is, it goes pretty deep, but like, I do think that a lot of people for some reason like to discount exercise. I mean, I think it deals with the fact that yes, for most people, well, 
again, there's this, so there's this other thing that people will say, like, exercise is bad for weight loss. And I'm like, well, a minimal amount of exercise is bad for weight loss because most people don't do enough exercise to really have a negative or to really have an effect on weight. So yeah, if you do 30 minutes of cardio per day, well, you're not going to lose fat because you're maybe burning two to 300 calories and you're definitely going to overeat that because you think you exercised and you're going to have to like replenish that. But I bet I could get somebody to lose a lot of weight by exercising if I exercise them enough. I mean, like most people aren't doing that amount obviously, but you know, if, if I get you to do enough, you're sure as hell going to lose weight. I mean, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Like I've found times where, I mean, I'm obviously, you know, using an anecdote here, but it's like, shoot, I've had times where I couldn't put on weight eating like, you know, probably 3,500 to 4,000 calories a day because I'm just running so much. I mean, you're losing weight by the day. It's like, geez, what else yeah. can you do? So right, right. if you exercise enough, you're going to lose weight. I mean, for most people, you know, that minimal, the minimal amount of calorie burn that they get through exercise is going to be effective. But um, I mean, exercise is just, it's so much more powerful than just calorie burn. And I think sometimes that's discounted as well. I mean, just improving your, I mean, a lot of people, it's not just like, oh, calories in is, are too many, but like, you know, mitochondria are dysfunctional and you're right. storing, you know, your insulin and your blood glucose responses to things are thrown off metabolically, just metabolic dysfunction, all things that exercise can really help. And so it's like, sure, we might not get the calorie balance through exercise, but looking from an energetic perspective, like you're going to get all these benefits through exercise that can't be gained just through diet alone, just by improving diet. I mean, diet can have so many good effects, but exercise can boost your metabolic health in ways that I think in the long run will definitely have um, benefits above and beyond just like changing, changing up diet for sure. Yeah. So one more thing before we go, I want to know whenever you lead up the, uh, the research for better metabolic health, better cardiovascular health, and the differences between people who wear shorts above their knees versus below. <laughs> I want to be a part of that, brother. Dude, yeah, you for sure, you for sure will be. You're gonna be in the short shorts scoop, right? Though. Dude, team short team shorts above the knees 100 percent man. Heck yeah, man. I think, yeah, I think if we did a cross-sectional comparison, the people who are wearing the shorts below the knees are just gonna not nah. not be so good on, not be so good in the long run. The yeah, short shorts yeah. are where it's at. Yeah. You get you're getting so much more sun on the dude, flies. I'm, I'm telling you, man. And and I, I, I was looking. I, my my listen, dude. My thighs got a nice tan right now. I'm proud about it. So, but listen, man. This has That's been good, great, man. dude. I, I appreciate you being here, Brady. And like I said, we'll get you back on. Um, thanks for being here, my friend. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Hang tight, real quick, Brady. And then um, I'll talk to you in a second, brother. Yeah, man, right, man. Sounds great. Thanks, brother. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Yep.